Hello, everyone. I'm Robert Polly, and this is the Seventh Avenue Project. Today on the show, the life, the legend, the music of Edith Piaf. Je revois la ville en fête et en délire, suffocant sous le soleil et sous la joie. There's a new biography of France's quintessential songstress from the writer Carolyn Burke, and you could say it's been a long time coming. Carolyn's been a fan ever since she first heard Piaf's voice as a college student living in Paris in 1959. I was knocked sideways. I'd never heard such passionate, powerful singing, just the sheer physical intensity that takes hold of you when you listen to her. Carolyn's not sure, but this may have been the very first Piaf song she ever heard. It's La Foule. It means the crowd, and it's still one of her favorites. This song is about the man and the woman who meet in the midst of the crowd in a moment of ecstatic communion or communication, but are then wrenched apart again by the sway of the crowd. And all of this is echoed and transmitted in the music. Just a few years after Carolyn first heard her, Edith Piaf was dead at the age of 47. But Carolyn's interest in her music only grew over the decades. She became a noted biographer and wrote highly regarded books on women artists like the poet Mina Loy and the photographer Lee Miller. And while Piaf may have seemed a natural subject for another biography, Carolyn says she was intimidated. She didn't work up the nerve to tackle Piaf's life until 2006 when she attended a memorial for the singer in Paris. It was at her grave that I felt Yes, I can do this, surrounded by all those people who had known her and were perpetuating her memory. Tell me more about that moment. What was it about standing at her grave with, with her fans, her admirers, um, that made you feel like, now I can do it? Listening to her and listening to the priest who was in charge of the service, I felt that her music spoke on so many levels. It could be taken as being about a spiritual yearning, a kind of spiritual love, along with the obvious worldly love. And it was feeling the immensity of that range and her incredible generosity that took hold of me in some way. And I thought, oh, I can do this. I'm going to try. So Carolyn set to work. She spent the next several years traveling back and forth to France, visiting Piaf's old haunts, and interviewing people who knew her. And she read everything she could get her hands on, including letters and materials unavailable to previous Piaf biographers outside of France. The result of all that research is the new book, No Regrets, The Life of Edith Piaf. It's just come out this week. Carolyn Burke joined me to talk about the book and to listen to some signature songs from throughout Piaf's career. Carolyn, first of all, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. The song we just heard, La Foule, that's a very late Piaf song. But for the moment, I'd like to go back really to the beginning of Edith Piaf's recording career to, uh, I guess, what was her first recording? Yes. Les Mômes de la Cloche. Right, right. Which translates as? The, the Miserable Street Kids. Why don't we hear a little bit of that? <laughs> Un bout à l'autre de la semaine Sur les boulevards dans les faubourgs On les voit traîner par centaines Leurs guêtres sales et leurs amours Dans des chemises de dix jours Sous la lumière des réverbères Prenant des airs de pompadour Ce sont nos belles ferronnières Ce sont nos poupées, nos guignols, nos pointes Écoutez dans la nuit Elles chantent ce refrain C'est nous les mômes, les mômes de la cloche Clochards qui s'en vont sans un rond en poche C'est nous les paumés, les purites paumés Qui sommes aimés un soir n'importe où Nous avons pourtant le cœur pas exigeant Mais personne n'en veut un bâton Et puis pour eux, qui que ça fout, on s'en fout Nul ne s'y accroche, il n'y a pas d'amour Et l'on sera toujours so that was Les Mômes de la Cloche, uh, The Street Kids, The Poor Street Kids by Edith Piaf, recorded in 1936. Yes. She was all of 
How old? Probably not yet 21, probably just 20 and a bit. But she had just been discovered by the man who invited her to come and sing at his nightclub. And naturally, he put her up on stage to sing this kind of song because that was her persona, the poor street kid herself. Tell me more about that. What is the story of Payaf? Where did she come from? Ah, well, she was born in Belleville, the poorest part of Paris, one of the poorest parts of Paris, in 1915, to parents who were themselves street entertainers and very poor ones. Her father was an acrobat and contortionist who was very proud of himself. He called himself the man who walked upside down or on his head. (laughs) And her mother um, was a street singer whose stage name, or rather street name, was Lean Massa, whose own mother had had a troupe of um, trained fleas. <laughs> so she she came by her street smarts uh, quite naturally. So when she sings about these poor street kids, she knows what she's talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. Interesting that she's maybe not yet 21, because that voice to me sounds older than her years. Yes, it may have come from having to bellow in the streets for so many years. She had been on her own already about five years by that time because she left her father at age 15, went to live by herself with a friend, and sang every day for five years. That, I think, would age your voice, particularly (laughs) when you had to project so that people could hear you. And you you lived by your earnings. Yes. I mean, what you got on the street. Yes, and you spent it as fast as you (laughs) got it. (laughs) So at least that part of the Piaf legend is absolutely true. Came from nothing performed on the streets, and was discovered. Yes. And how was she discovered and when? Well, this is the way the story goes, and I have every reason to accept it. She was discovered in the autumn of 35, singing on a street off the Champs-Élysées by this nightclub owner, um, Le Play, who stood there and listened to her, and after she was finished said, My dear, you're going to ruin your voice if you keep bellowing like that. They got into a conversation. She said, well, I have to sing like this to earn my my keep. And he said, well, I have another idea. Come to my club. (laughs) And apparently uh, uh, she took off from that point, except when her impresario was murdered. This is Le Play. Yes, and she fell apart because Le Play was her substitute father. Mm. She called him Papa Le Play. He was the one who had launched her. He was looking after her and had plans for the future. So she lost everything at that moment. Now, she was born Edith Gassion. Yes. And Piaf, her famous name, is actually a nickname. Yes, Le Play gave it to her. He said when she came to sing at his club that she would need another name. And he apparently looked at her and said, you're a little street sparrow. I'm going to call you La Môme Moineau. Moineau is sparrow in French. But that was taken. There was another singer by that name. <laughs> so he said, okay, we'll use the slang. And Piaf is slang for sparrow. So that's how she got her name. And it took. Mm-hmm. And she was little, too. Very little. She was about four seven or four eight at most, a tiny thing. Mm, but she'd never know it from her singing. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, that singing that we just heard uh, in that song, Les Mômes de la Cloche, I mean, that was part of a, of a whole genre at the time of singing about life on the streets, the life of poverty, the life of criminals and pimps and especially prostitutes. And there are some prostitutes in that song. She sings in the voice of... The, the girls who drag around the streets and who are loved for a night no matter where and then pick up and go on again. It's the romance of the bas-fond, of the um, lower depths, mm-hmm. which was a very literary theme already in the 1930s in Paris when these songs were current. There were numerous novels and a whole musical repertoire that deploys this kind of picturesque yeah, sort of, Atmosphere. sort of quaint and, and uh, even glamorous depiction of, of hard lives of people on the edge, on the fringes. And what's particularly interesting is that people from the high French culture like Jean Cocteau like to go slumming in these same dives and bars where singers like Piaf and her mother might be performing 
because he and many others, uh, artists as well, found a kind of fresh energy in these parts of Paris where people didn't behave properly at all. Huh. So over in America, you know, a lot of American jazz age artists were, of course, quote, slumming in Harlem, right, going to jazz clubs. The French had their version of that, too. It's comparable, yes. Yeah. Yes. How interesting. And that tradition that she was a part of, and by no means the first, was called uh, La Chanson Realiste, I mean, yes. the, the realist song. Yes, and the movement. idea was that uh, these songs talked about real people's lives and sorrows and suffering, including um, addictions and other lifestyle problems, if we could call it that, <laughs> although the word is inappropriate, that beset the lower classes. And at the same time, it's interesting because they were so popular, you have to think that people saw themselves in these songs, that, that in some way they felt respected in having their own trials and tribulations sung about, even if this was already a set of tropes and mm-hmm. commonplaces. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, hear one of... Um Edith Piaf's predecessors in this uh, chanson realiste tradition. Uh, her name is Freyel, and this is a song called La Coco. J'avais un amant depuis quelques mois Je l'aimais de toute mon âme Mais il m'a quitté sans savoir pourquoi Il a brisé mon cœur de femme Et depuis je vais partout où l'on voit Dans toutes les maisons où l'on souffre Je sors tous les soirs espérant le voir Et le champagne emplit ma coupe Quand je suis grise, je dis des bêtises, j'amuserai Gigolo. Comme les copines, je me morphine, ça me rend tout rigolo. Je prends de la coco, ça trouble mon cerveau. That was just a little bit of a song called La Coco by Freyel. That was her stage name. The title La Coco, Carolyn, what does that refer to? It's slang for cocaine, which is the um, character's way of seeking comfort because the man she loved has left her, which is always, almost always the case in these songs. And by the way, I don't know the date of that recording, but I, th- I think 1930s. Sounds like it. Yeah, hmm. maybe late 20s. But Freyel was well established by the time Piaf came along, and Piaf joined that, uh, again, that tradition of the uh, realist song. Um, I think uh, that, in, in a way, is part of a kind of a larger uh, aesthetic, if that's the right word, uh, in France, of um, miserablisme. Yes. It means sort of um, glorification of poverty. Uh-huh. I don't know if we have anything quite like it, although your point about going slumming in Harlem comes close. I mean, the French seem to have a special relationship to this. There's another French phrase that comes to mind, la nostalgie de la boue, nostalgia for the mud, for the lower depths. Yes, it's sort of an implicit belief that that's where the real life is, Mm -hmm. where the real French (laughs) spirit, resilience, the ability to survive all these sorrows and travails can be found. Mm. And you see it in the French films of the 30s, too. And of course, this was the Depression. Yes. So it fit in with everyone's sense that life was extremely hard. Why not, in some way, celebrate the virtues and and sort of saving graces of that hard life Hmm. by making heroes and heroines out of the little people, as they were called in France, le petit peuple. It's a a very interesting subject, and it runs right through the culture of the 30s. It goes back at least as far as Victor Hugo, wouldn't you say? Yes. Les Miserables. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And some people have seen... Edith Piaf as a sort of Cosette figure. It's an aesthetic, if we call it that, that the French are very fond of, although less so now. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, we should explain who Cosette was. Oh, Cosette um, in uh, Victor Hugo's novel and the very successful Broadway play of Les Miserables. I'd like to play another of uh, Edith Piaf's uh, early recordings, and I believe this also falls into the same 
category, a chanson realiste, realist song. This is L'Etranger. It's a very poetic version of, of chanson realiste, and it's one of my favorites for that reason. She sings it so well. Here it is from 1936. Great piano. Oh, it's beautiful. D'une voix chantante Et j'ai compris que ce soir-là Malgré la pluie et le froid Je serai contente Il avait un regard très doux Il venait de notre D'où viens-tu Quel est ton nom Le navire est ma maison, la mer, mon village. Mon nom, nul ne le saura. Je suis simplement un gars. Ah. L'étranger from 1936. Again, Edith Piaf was only 20 or 21 at the time she recorded that. Right. And she even stole the song from the first singer who recorded it, Annette Lajon. At that point, Piaf was not at all known, and so she had difficulty getting good material. What she would do would either be to go into the shops where for a few francs you could listen to the latest records and memorize them, or she would go around the recording studios and, and do the same, memorize other people's songs and then sing them, because the studios would not yet uh, give her material. She wasn't sufficiently well known. Well, that's a, a beautiful uh, rendition, both her singing and also that atmospheric piano. Do you happen to know who is accompanying her? No, although I could find out, uh, mm. I don't actually know. It, it, but the, it's so interesting to look back on it. That song is in a way a prototype for all the other songs that she would sing that would be better known about the mysterious man who comes into the woman's life, who he's the foreigner in this song. He doesn't even have a name. He won't give his name. And so there's um, what we call a one-night stand, perhaps lacking understanding of a love that can be fleeting. <laughs> and there will be other songs like that, Mon Légionnaire, and a whole raft of them. Uh, a man who appears for a day or two or a night and, and then disappears, leaving, yes. leaving the heroine heartbroken. <laughs> That's true. At the same time, there's a kind of acceptance, which we might call something like fatalistic, but which translates with a bit of difficulty from French culture to ours. I think the French are more accepting of these passing romances. Even though, um, again, the, the tragic heroine in these songs, you know, may turn to cocaine, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. as in the case of the Freyel song we just heard, uh, may even commit suicide. That's yeah. possible yeah. in some of the songs. <laughs> but then there's another approach. The French say, nous avons fait un bout de chemin ensemble. We went a few steps. We went a little way along the path together. And uh-huh. then we said goodbye. <laughs> it's it's it, perhaps a different point of view from mm. what we're accustomed to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a genuine acceptance or resignation to this kind of heartbreak, but there's also, again, a romanticization of it in these songs. Yes, I would agree. You know, there's Both a... together. <laughs> and that's called realism in France. That's funny, isn't it? <laughs> it yes. is. Yes. It is. Realism is a, is a very suspect concept. I mean, it's a... It means very different things to different people. Um, But one thing that was real in this case, this kind of broken love affair or or rapid rapid love affair (laughs) was something that Piaf specialized in. Yes. Reading your book, I completely lost track of how many lovers, husbands, affairs she had. It seemed as though every other page there was a new guy. Well, I think that's later on. Okay. But I'm sorry <laughs> if I wasn't able to keep the chronology clear. No, no, no it's not your times. fault at all. It's just it's, too much information. It's, she was busy that way. I think that this happens after the war and after the death of the great love of her life, Marcel Cerdon. Before that, she was relatively calm, if we can say that, because one lover might last for three years, another would come along, maybe 
two years, but we could keep track of them better. I could count them on, on you know, one hand. Whereas after the death of Cerdan, which was the beginning of her decline also uh, physically, and um, her need to take a lot of pain medicine to control the terrible pain she was suffering, that's when you find so many men coming and going that it's literally hard to keep track of mm. them. Mm. Uh, a lot of them were um, fellow artists of various kinds, or performers, or celebrities. There yes. were songwriters, there were actors, singers like Yves Montand, mm -hmm. uh, Jacques Peel. There was the boxer, Marcel Cerdan, who was at one point the middleweight champion of the world. Right. And uh, let's see, there was the American actor, Eddie Constantine. Eddie Constantine. Yeah, and some were also her songwriters, yes? A few. A Moustaki, Georges Moustaki. That's right, yeah. Was, uh, he's in the uh, group of m younger men, because later in her life we start having younger and younger men, which is interesting, too. I think, in a way, her choice of partners fits into the larger picture that I would describe as her creating a substitute family, connections through artistic and emotional affinities. She was really creating a kind of family she'd never had. She lived with an entourage. She supported great numbers of people because she wanted them around her all the time. And some of those lovers, songwriters, husbands, etc., could be seen in that larger picture. Unlike the female figures in most of her love songs, she was the one who ditched the guys, typically. Often, yeah. although some of them just couldn't take it because she was really <laughs> tough to live with. And they walked out. <laughs> uh, now, we've talked about only a couple years in her career, and already she's been discovered at 19 and recorded, um, I guess, several records uh, You know, in her 20th or 21st year. At what point did she become really famous and celebrated? I think you would have to say in the early 40s, when she was only in her mid-20s. Uh, she was already becoming quite well-known during the war. And people under the rigors of the German occupation found comfort in listening to the, the, the popular singers. It's very interesting to think about the effects of popular song in times of crisis. People came to really, really love her and know her well at that time. So from the war years on, she was seen almost as the voice of France. Wow. Well, let's um, play some pieces from that period. Let's start maybe with the late 30s, right before the German occupation, uh, with a song called Mont Légionnaire. de grands yeux très clairs, parfois passés des éclairs, comme au ciel passent les orages. Il avait plein de tatouages que j'ai jamais très bien compris. Son coup portait à vue pas pris. Sur son cœur on lisait personne, sur son bras droit un mot raisonne. Je sais pas son nom, je ne sais rien de lui. Il m'a aimé toute la nuit, mon légionnaire. Et me laissant à mon dessin, il est parti dans le matin plein de lumière. Il était mince, il était bon, il sentait bon le sable chaud. Mon légionnaire. That's Mon Légionnaire, um, My Légionnaire. Uh, Carolyn, do we even need to bother saying what uh, Fiaf is singing about in this song? Hardly, because it's the same scenario. Uh, the, the man whose name she doesn't know, oh, whose circumstances she knows nothing about except that he's a member of the Foreign Legion and that they spent a night together during which she discovered the tattoos on his torso. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm tempted to sort of just laugh at the cliché of it all, but then I'm remembering that between World War I and World War II, there were a lot of soldiers. There probably were a lot of guys who shacked up with a woman for a very short amount of time and disappeared. So maybe it really wasn't quite a cliché at that point. Also, it was a romantic myth. If we think of um, 
the Foreign Legion, the movie with Gary Cooper and Marlene Dietrich. There was a whole mystique around that theme uh, in the 30s, a sort of colonial exoticism. And it was always that kind of romance because the man was a tough guy and had to go off to fight or do whatever it was he was doing. Even Humphrey Bogart has something of that. And, and of course, during that period, you know, many French men were in the military. Yes. They had to be. Edith had a real <laughs> weakness for men in uniform. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a song, though she um, started singing it before the war, um, she continued to sing it during the years of the German occupation. You write that it was one of several songs that she wasn't supposed to sing just because it seemed to give props to the, uh, to the French military. Right. There's another one that's closely connected and was that was written by the same composer, Raymond Asso, called um, Le Fanion de la Légion, or The Foreign Legion's Pennant. And when she sang that one, which ends with a kind of triumphant call to resistance, you can imagine how the German censors took it. So she was asked not to sing certain songs, and on occasion she was defiant and refused to take them out of her repertoire at the cost of being forbidden, verboten, on stage <laughs> for a time. The uh, Germans marched into Paris, I think, on June 14, 1940. Right. And they were there for about three years. 44 was when they were finally evicted. Yes, yes. When, when Paris was liberated. Um, and during those years, she continued to perform. She didn't leave France. She didn't join the resistance. But you write that she definitely did her bit in... in maybe subtle ways. Yes, she did. At first, like many entertainers, she went to the unoccupied zone in the south of France where uh, the Germans were not in charge, although the Vichy regime was, and she performed quite a bit there. But she made the brave decision to go back to Paris, which was a dangerous one, and uh, had the sense that it was her duty and her wish to sing to keep up morale uh, which I alluded to earlier. Now, the story that is often told is that she went to sing under German auspices in a German prisoner of war camp where French prisoners were held. And people have wondered about her motives. Well, it, first of all, it was the kind of offer you couldn't refuse. If the Germans wanted you to do that, uh, you better go along. There were very few ways you could say no. But the second thing that isn't well known is that with her secretary, who belonged to a resistance cell already in 1943, they carried out a plan that allowed a whole lot of those prisoners to escape eventually, and that was very, very dangerous for both women, but successful. So Piaf actually turned her, we could call it forced entertainment, if that isn't too strong a word, into a means to help the resistance movement. How did she actually uh, assist these uh, these French prisoners of war uh, in escaping? This is a wild story worthy of a movie, and I'm sorry that they didn't put it into the recent biopic. Which this was is, uh, La Vie en Rose. Yes. Uh, 2007. Yeah. what happened. Edith, very naturally, being well known by 1943, was... Um, sought after by these French prisoners of war who all wanted to take pictures with her. So she fraternized with them a great deal. They had lots and lots of pictures taken. The film was taken back to Paris, immediately turned over to the resistance unit. The photographs of each prisoner were blown up and turned into fake identity cards that would help them later. Edith and the secretary then went back on a second trip with these photographs concealed in a, the false bottom of a suitcase along with compasses and maps, which they distributed, and the Germans never caught on. Had she been caught doing that? Oh, that would have been the end of her. Maybe the death penalty. Yes, yeah. I think so. Yeah. So unlike some French performers and lots of French citizens, um, she didn't have anything to be ashamed of during the war? No, she didn't, and she actually made strenuous efforts to protect her Jewish friends, many of whom were composers, musicians. She was earning a good deal then, so she devoted some of her funds to sheltering these people in the south of France, paying for their care so they could remain in hiding, and um, behaving extremely well under very, very difficult circumstances. 
But lots of people heard uh, and spread rumors of a different sort without understanding that she had really been quite courageous. Another of the songs um, that she sang during those years that seemed to, to, to um, in a gentle way, signal defiance against the Germans, I guess, was uh, one called Où sont-ils mes petits copains? Where are my little friends? Where are my pals? My buddies. My buddies, yeah. Which she wrote herself, the lyrics, and it was quite unexpected that she would also become a songwriter. But it was so interesting that her very first song marks the beginning of the war, because she's asking, where have all my buddies gone? These are, of course, the men who've gone off to do military service. Mm -hmm. And for those years when the Nazis were occupying Paris, that was a dangerous kind of question to ask uh, in public. Yes, and in the song, she writes about the pals from all over Paris, from all these different neighborhoods, particularly the poor ones that we've been talking about. And so the song gives a kind of a vision of Paris as it was before the Nazis came. <laughs> mm. Well, here's an excerpt from that song, Où sont-ils mes petits copains? Edith Piaf doing her utmost for free France there during the war years um, with that song. Uh, yeah, the orchestration there with its military drums and marching band sound doesn't leave any doubt as to who she's talking about. It's very interesting to know that near the end of her life, she wrote what we could consider an anti-war song called Roulet Tambour. And again, the drums come back in. The title is ironic. It, it you, We could translate it as Beat the Drums. But that song, probably about 61, 62, so just a year before her death, alludes to Hiroshima, alludes to the great military mm. tragedies and madness of you know, the previous decades. It's very mm. interesting to think of you know, an anti-war piaf. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you said that uh, among the other things she did during uh, the Nazi occupation was shelter Jewish friends, yes. uh, some of whom were her composers, I guess, yes. uh, fellow artists. Was one of them Michelle Emer? She helped Michelle Emer, yes. Uh, she did, for a time, help him to have shelter in the south of France. He was a Russian-born Jewish composer who wrote some of her most famous songs. Yes. Including the one I'd like to play now, L'Accordioniste, the accordionist. Please do. La fille de joie est belle au coin de la rue là-bas, elle a une clientèle qui lui remplit son bar. Quand son boulot s'achève, elle s'en va à son tour, chercher un peu de rêve dans un bal du faubourg. Son homme est un artiste, c'est un drôle de petit gars, un accordéoniste qui sait jouer la java. Mais elle ne la danse pas Elle ne regarde même pas la piste Et ses yeux amoureux suivent le généreux Et les doigts c'est qu'elle nom de l'artiste Ça lui rentre dans la peau par le bas, par le haut Elle a envie de changer sa physique Tout son être étendu, son soufflet suspendu C'est une vraie étendue de la musique L'Accordioniste, uh, sung by Edith Piaf and, and composed by Michel Aimer, uh one of her favorite composers of that era. Um, and you have a story about 
Aimer bringing her that song? Yes, Caroline? he was already, um, he'd been drafted, and he had to uh, leave the, the next day to go um, join his unit in the south of France. But he brought the song to her the night before, and she was so taken with it that she said, no, you can't leave. I'm going to uh, no, get you an extra day before you go because I've got to learn this song. I'm going to perform it at my next concert tomorrow night. And somehow she wangled it and had Michel Emer in the audience. She introduced him to the audience and said, this is a soldat, a soldier going to protect la France. And so she turned the whole occasion into an opportunity to thank Emer publicly. And that kind of launched his career. He had written songs before, mm. but such an accolade under such circumstances was exceptional. This would have been just before the Germans took control. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That song, um, I think that one really captures uh, the essence of Piaf. Yes, I'd agree with you. And it has some of the familiar themes. Of course, the woman she's singing about is another one of those prostitutes with a heart of gold who's standing on the street corner um, waiting for her lover to return and who goes to the local dive to listen to the accordion music. And the wonderful part at the end is when she is completely overtaken by the music and feels it, as the lyric says, from her head to her toe. She's crazy about music. So it has all those elements, very um, sensual. It's also got the theme of the, um, the lady of the streets, the love affair that won't work out, and the acceptance. It's got a dark ending, though. That's right. Yeah? Why don't we just play the very Let's last do. bit? So what's she saying there at the end, Carolyn? Stop, stop the music. And there's a wonderful catch in her throat in the last word. The, even the, uh, the prostitute with the heart of gold who loves the accordion can't bear it anymore. The intensity is too great. So she cries out, Arrête, stop the music. You know, one reason I said that sort of essential piaf there is that you've got this almost happy waltz, you know, this, this sort of celebratory waltz going on, and yet the, the lyrics are very dark, and you can hardly tell whether she's happy or sad at some points, you know. Well, you have both. You have uh, both, it's, exactly, it's, that's yeah. That's part of the emotional richness of her typical songs, and also perhaps what I was trying to get at earlier, this different, complicated sense of what goes into a song and how does it reflect our lives. We have everything all entangled. We don't get pure happiness or pure sadness, but they go together. <laughs> but there's this, uh, there's this great passion throughout, whether it's good or bad. She's completely in it. Well, she's possessed by the she's music. She's possessed by the music, exactly. Um, later on, she came to um, sort of disown that label, realist, realist. Yes, she didn't want to be confined or constrained to one genre, and she got a little tired of the miserabilisme. <laughs> she wanted to be able to sing about the full range of experience and not be treated like La Môme Piaf, the poor kid from the streets, uh, her persona at the beginning. And so she was very keen to break out of that particular um, musical straitjacket or typecasting, as she saw it. Right, right. Though the uh, aura of tragedy kept, you know, invading not only her music, but also her real life. There was, yes. We talked about Marcel Cerdan, mm -hmm. who uh, was the great boxer who she fell in love with, and they had an affair. He was married, but they were well known to be an item. <laughs> Everyone knew it, right? Yes. Uh, and he was killed in a plane crash. Yes, it was as if the tragic dimension of her songs kept feeding back into her life. And... Naturally, she pursued these themes in song. She wrote 
a very beautiful uh, song that was often associated with the death of Cerdon, although I think she composed it before the plane crash, called Hymn to Love in, in English, L'hymne à l'amour. Quite a remarkable song in its vision of, of uh, death as part of earthly experience, and it also shows her desire to believe in an everlasting life where the, the lovers can meet again. Mm. I'd like to definitely play a little bit of the one you just mentioned that Edith Piaf wrote the lyrics for, yes? Yes. Im à l'amour, yes. Im to love. A little segment there from Im à l'amour, uh, Hymn to Love by Edith Piaf. À l'amour. À l'amour, sorry. <laughs> you got to say that word right. Uh, <laughs> um, it's funny because I was going to remark that a, a lot of Piaf's songs, it feels as though she's almost holding back a little bit, and that's part of her charm. She's not belting all the time. Yes. Sometimes she's merely speaking. Yes. Sometimes she's restraining herself and that lends a feel of, of taut emotion. But in this one, she lets go and becomes a full-on, you know, playing to the balconies kind of singer. Right, right, which she did do. Uh, She could let it all out when it was appropriate. Her bond with the audience was remarkable. She had a very, very accurate sense of how, how people responded to her. And some have said her greatest love affair was with her audience. You you said that during the war years, she really established herself as the national voice, the the great singer of France. But she still wasn't uh, established overseas. No. And in in the 1950s or late 40s, she began to uh, come to the U.S.? Yes, she toured the U.S. eight times. Given the great love of, of the U.S. after the war because of the G.I.s coming and liberating France from the occupiers, uh, there was a very pro-American feeling at the time. It's so interesting to remember that uh, Yves Montand, who was one of her protégés and lovers, got his start before he met her singing French versions of American cowboy songs. <laughs> Such was the vogue for American culture at the time. Well, what Piaf wanted to do, as Chevalier, her friend, had done, Maurice, Maurice Chevalier, Chevalier. Yeah. was to go and conquer America. Many French entertainers saw that as the next step. Uh, So she did organize a tour in uh, 47-48, going first to New York. And she was so successful after a difficult start that, as I said, she then made eight tours through the 50s, appearing on such American cultural programs as the Ed Sullivan Show (laughs) over and over again. Uh, Ed was a fan, yeah? Yes, he loved her. <laughs> I've seen the clips of Edith Piaf appearing on Ed Sullivan's show, and they're very, very funny because Sullivan was a great, big, tall, not very graceful person, rather awkward. Mm. And he loved to lean over Edith and pat her on her head and, and tell the audience that she was the most um, powerful 90 pounds in all of show business and things like that. It sounds... Um, Patronizing. Patronizing, yeah. and yet it played well in the atmosphere of the mm. 50s. Mm. Uh, I guess uh, some Americans didn't take to her immediately. You quote a, um, a scathing review from one of her, I think her, her debut in New York, or, yes. or one of her first performances in New York, 
This is by a guy, long forgotten, well, Piaf is still remembered, George Jean Nathan. <laughs> oh, yes, that's the single nastiest review, scathing. <laughs> he writes, a small, chunky woman with tousled reddish hair, heavily mascaraed eyes, and a mouth made up to look like a quart bottle of mercurochrome. <laughs> and then later he says, cultivates the pitch and tone of gulpy despair. Yes, that that uh, review nearly did her in. Fortunately, the American composer and francophile Virgil Thompson came to the rescue. Thompson understood the culture from which she came and couldn't bear to see her being dismissed in this way by Nathan, who was a well-known um, acerbic critic who loved to just sort of make himself... Savage see, people. Yeah. yeah, savage people to make himself look better. So yeah. uh, Virgil Thompson published a really, really interesting, well-informed um, and glowing review in the Herald Tribune, which saved the day. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like dueling critics. Mm-hmm. Part of the problem was that people had expected a chanteuse like Marlene Dietrich wearing long gowns and sequins, and instead they got this little person in a plain black dress who didn't go in for any kind of glamour or frou-frou. Yeah, and and her voice is not pretty in some conventional sense. That's right. Mm. It's a tough voice. Mm -hmm. It's a hard voice. It can get pretty if she wants to. She gets quite melodious when she wants to be. Yes. But boy, she could, you know, there's something kind of sinewy about her voice that's, that's, I think, really stood the test of time. And we have to think that at that time, New what New Yorkers were interested in were happy Broadway musicals. So they were very unprepared for what Edith Piaf was until they got a sense, aha, this is something rather different. Yeah, if you think of the other tragic diva of the era, or at least one of the others, um, Judy Garland, um, though she too was ruining herself with drugs, and we'll get to that with Piaf in just a moment, and though there was something, you know, deeply poignant about her singing, the songs weren't as outwardly tough-minded, you know. They were still playing to a show tunes kind of crowd. Right, and you could remember her in The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Well, let's play another song from uh, Edith Piaf during that era, 1956 in this case. Um, yet another doomed lover <laughs> Yes. <laughs> story. It's Les Amants d'un jour. I guess that translates as lovers for a day or yes. something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Moi, Ils sont arrivés, se tenant par la main, l'air émerveillé de deux chérubins portant le soleil. Ils ont demandé d'une voix tranquille un toit pour s'aimer au cœur de la ville. Et je me rappelle qu'ils ont regardé d'un air attendu. La chambre d'hôtel au papier jauni Et quand j'ai fermé la porte sur eux Il y avait tant de soleil au fond de leurs yeux Que ça m'a fait mal, que ça m'a fait mal Moi je suis l'hiver au fond du café so, again, there was an excerpt from a song by Edith Piaf, this one from 1956, Les Amants d'un Lovers for a Day. What's the story here, Carolyn? Piaf sings in the voice of the barmaid who's at the back of a bar uh, on the first floor of a seedy hotel. She's wiping the glasses and saying how she doesn't give a damn about anyone or anything when she sees... Two lovers come into the hotel in obvious need of a room so that they can spend a night together. And the music changes. You can hear the contrast between the first um, kind of tinkling 
refrains when she's standing there wiping her glasses. And then what follows the vision of these two who are so in love that they will go to any extreme to be together, come what may. And the song alternates between these two very different melodic registers. Mm-hmm. Very, very different. It gets kind of swoony and amorous at one point and then uh, more detached. or, or Yes, yeah. jaded, jaded. Seen, seen it all. Yes, disillusioned. Classic Piaf. Yeah, that's a wonderful song because it does reflect the kind of moods, the range of moods she was able to evoke even in a single song. Yes, and that you have this drama, uh, you know, in the one song, both the disillusionment and the belief in absolute love, even if it's ephemeral, we would say. And it ends badly. It ends badly in, in tragedy. Let's hear a little tiny bit of the end of this song. Moi, je suis l'hiver au fond du café J'ai bien trop à faire pour pouvoir rêver Et dans ce décor banal à pleurer Il y a toujours dehors La chambre à louer What what happened there? She breaks a glass, this barmaid, after yes. seeing this? Yes, she can't maintain her jaded pose. It gets to her that the lovers, I think, I think they commit suicide. I think they have no money, and so they've rented this room to spend their last night together, and that's too much. So she smashes the glass. Mm. Now, at this time, we're talking now the, the mid-late 50s, um, Piaf is only in her late 30s and early 40s. That's right. But by this time, you know, her body was pretty much used up. Right. Why? What what, what was she doing? There's a whole series of causes that lead to this. After the death of the boxer, Cerdon, she was hit suddenly by intense arthritic pain throughout her body, which we could perhaps call psychosomatic, although we don't need to. And from then on, she was prescribed lots of drugs by her doctors to manage the pain so that she could go on singing because that was her life. However, at that time in the 50s and even now, the doctors didn't necessarily pay attention to the different prescriptions. So she might be taking three or four different things that were incompatible uh, and obviously not a good mix. Then she was in a series of car accidents which made a bad situation even worse. And she also drank quite a bit, probably mostly red wine. She wasn't Mm. a big boozer. (laughs) But this was a kind of self-medication, I would say. Mm. She underwent three cures, detox cures, trying to break herself of these habits. And she was successful towards the end of her life when she was so ill but it was too late. Her liver was badly damaged. At, at one point, she was taking morphine, uh, cortisone, and then this really horrible-sounding drug they were shooting her up with before her performances just so she could go on stage called um, coramine. Yes, and those things, I've looked them up, are extremely dangerous. It was... Uh, she should have had one doctor supervising all of the treatments, and that this was never the case. So it was a patchwork of nasty-sounding um, and very powerful drugs. So by 1959, when she was only about 44 at this point, she she went on a tour that was actually called her suicide tour by, by some of the press. The press called it that. Yeah. They'd become very cynical. They were practically taking bets on whether or not she would make it, whether she would die on stage. By then, she was so famous throughout France that they were following her from provincial town to provincial town with a kind of a morbid interest in whether or not she'd survive. And and at some point, she was hospitalized, and it looked like her career might be over. Um, And then in 1960... Now, if I had to write a very corny story of of a, of a tragic diva, it might go something like this. You know, after a life of, of setbacks and comebacks, this person is laid low and virtually at death's door, but, you know, rallies herself for one last triumphant performance. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> All 
Although in that performance was so triumphant that she then carried on for another year and a half, we could say. But it's true. And uh, the story is the one that you know about Charles Dumont, another composer, coming to her uh, apartment in Paris when she refused to see anyone and you know, said, no, I can't, I'm not well enough. But he persisted. He and his lyricist came and knocked on the door. Only at the last minute when Piaf's secretary said, well, they're here, even though I told them not to come, she said, oh, well, let them in. Dumont played the song, Non, je ne regrette rien, which gives me the title of my book, No Regrets, in English. She perked up, and she more than perked up. She said, that's it, play it again. She made him stay all night long. Uh, during that night, she summoned all of her friends, all of the people who worked with her, and said, play it again, play it again. They all listened to it. And then she announced the next day, when poor Dumont was exhausted, I'm going to sing it. You can book the Olympia, which was the great music hall where she was to perform. It sounds like an, a fairy tale, but it really happened that way. So she goes to the Olympia, the great um, Paris concert hall, and she sings a program that, does it end with Non, je ne regrette rien? I think so. Okay. And all of France <laughs> applauded. It was our national icon has arisen from her deathbed. I regret nothing, um, no regrets. Edith Piaf sings that at the Olympia when she was basically near death, and she got how many standing ovations? Oh, it went on for uh, like 20 minutes or something, and it was like a national triumph for her to be able to do that, and she was celebrated that way. It's hard to imagine a comparable moment in our musical history, but perhaps... There is one, France being so much smaller and the centralization of, of culture and, and music being so much greater, uh, this meant more somehow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that song really is her anthem. And <laughs> in a way, it's a, it's a version of the French national anthem, too. How so? Well, immediately different groups took it up. For example, during the Algerian War, which was being waged in these last years and on into the 60s, different groups, including some of the Algerian Pied Noir, the settler family, would sing it and hold it out as their anthem, saying, we don't regret anything, we're just going to go ahead with, with our policies. So it was interesting. It had an effect on different groups, different parts of the society who all responded to it as a kind of um, revolutionary song, something like the Marseillaise, which she had sung in a film. Uh -huh. well, well, you know, having read uh, in your book just how broken Edith Piaf was uh, physically by the time she sang that song, 
I can scarcely believe that recording. I mean, she never sounded better to my ear. It is remarkable, isn't it? And the recordings in the very last year of her life, you can hear the damage to her voice. You can hear um, some weakness. Even sometimes she sings off-key, but you certainly don't hear that in this triumphant recording of Non, je ne regrette rien, and the other songs that were part of her program at the Olympia. She's still la grande Edith Piaf at that time. <laughs> so the name is No Regrets, and the lyrics uh, go something like this. Uh, no, nothing at all. No, I regret. I don't regret anything, neither the good nor the bad that's been done to me. Uh, it's all the same to me. Uh, and she goes on in that manner. <laughs> yes, and the wonderful uh, thing that we may lose a bit in translation is the way she voices all of this, mm -hmm. because in the French, the emphasis falls on the negatives, on the non, mm -hmm. the very strong no, and on the nothing, on rien. So again and again, you hear this um, theme come through musically, and you also hear her marvelous trilled R, R's in the beginning of rien. Rien. <laughs> yes, yes. So it's very strong musically in a way that underscores the determination of the lyrics to put the past behind you and to carry on quand même, just the same. Ah, but tell me, though, I mean, if we really want to scrutinize it and make a distinction between art and reality, no regrets, really? I mean, it's it's very willful. It's it's a position one can take. <laughs> of course, we, we all have heaps of regrets. But what she was wanting to say in that song, and she said in interviews that I've heard, was that, yes, she'd suffered a great deal. She'd made many mistakes. And yet she wouldn't change a thing because all of it gave her the ability to understand what life was about and to presented in her songs to her audience. So in that sense, she didn't regret it because she, mm. it fed into her art. And yet when she died in 1963, 10 days after her funeral, a French magazine published what was supposed to be her last confession. Yes. And it said, when I think of my life, all that debauchery, that waste of strength, I'm ashamed. When I look back on that little woman in her fur coat dragging her loneliness and ennui through the night, I think that's what Piaf was. I ask everyone's forgiveness. When you read this letter to be published after my death, do not cry. I, I think it may be apocryphal. I don't know if she wrote it, but because it has the effect that it does, I quoted it at the end of my book, and then I capped it in a sense or gave it um, a counterpoint by quoting her dear friend, Charles Aznavour, who was also her protege, but not her lover, when he said uh, that if he thinks back about Edith Piaf, he remembers, above all, her laughter, her, her joyous embrace of life, her unquenchable laughter, rather than the poor pathetic waif picture that we're <laughs> often given and that that apocryphal <laughs> confession gives us. In fact, you write, uh, it was her deep-throated laugh, Osnivore believed, that, quote, freed her from anguish, sorrow, and fear, her only fear of being unable to go on stage to win over the crowds that loved her. Yes, we can end with that. <laughs> we could. But I want to end with a question, actually, about us. That is, the audience that that loves our divas to suffer. You know what I mean? Oh, yes, I do. And, and loves martyrdom. I mean, why do we ask this, and I think we do sometimes, or why do we treasure it when it happens in, I, mm, in these great female singers? I've thought about this a good deal. It also ha happens, by the way, in the way we present um, some male sin singers like Johnny Cash, when you think of the recent biopic, which it's a kind of a format. And I've, I do ask myself about it. I rather wonder if it isn't something like a um, lay version of the religious paradigm. Somebody's got to suffer for her and our sins. <laughs> There's something of that feeding into this peculiar repetition. We have it with uh, over and over again with Billie Holiday, with Judy Garland, and with any number of more contemporary singers. What do you think, Robert? Uh, that's as good as anything I can come up with. I mean, there's a tradition even in non 
you know, Christian societies of uh, of one member of society taking on the scapegoat. The, the scapegoat, exactly. The burdens, the sacrifice, the human sacrifice. Mm-hmm. I almost think of Edith Piaf as a human sacrifice. <laughs> Willing human sacrifice. <laughs> yes, uh, you know, the, uh, I think you're uh, right on the mark there, and we seem to want that in our cultures. We have some examples. Uh, we have people like um, one another of my heroines, Janis Joplin. Mm. W- more recently, mm-hmm. we have um, Kurt Cobain. We have all sorts exactly. of people who yeah. re- seem whose careers and lives seem to reenact that scapegoating, um, sacrificial element that you just described. And boy, do we love it. And mm-hmm. we, we love Piaf. Yes, we do. I still love her deeply. And I think I will always be hugely grateful to her for letting me write her life. Well, Carolyn, I just want to thank you a lot. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. It's been a tremendous pleasure for me. I am so glad that we have this opportunity. Thank you, Robert. Carolyn Burke. Her new book is No Regrets, The Life of Edith Piaf. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. You can visit us on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com.